think it's time for a global conversation around agriculture. The more I look into agriculture around the world, the more I'm starting to think there's another game being played. Now, for those who know me, they know I can pretty much smell out when a game is being played on. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to go to a magic show just to catch the magic trick, right? (laughs) I mean, it's hilarious. Sometimes you catch it, sometimes you don't, right? What if I told you in this game we call agriculture, there's something going on that we need to pay attention to, so much so that it was actually part of the largest civil rights settlement in U.S. history. Joining us on today's episode is the lead attorney, the one who put this all together, and who's going to show us what may be going on in this industry of agriculture, one of the largest industries in the world. And it's happening right underneath our nose until today. I'm DJ Motru of Black Equity Network, and welcome to Black Equity Podcast. We are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast, and I am excited about this conversation. We're actually going to be speaking with uh, the attorney who was part of the largest civil rights settlement in U.S. history. And when I read about this story and read about uh, all the details uh, around this, I had to speak to our guest today. Uh, so joining us on Black Equity Podcast, Greg Francis, welcome to Black Equity. Well, thank you for having me, DJ. It's, uh, it's uh, my pleasure to be here with you today. We are honored. Uh, for those who don't know who you are, obviously you're an attorney. Where, when did this all start? When you got into uh, the space of civil rights, how did that all begin for you? You know, it, it, uh, I grew up in uh, Orlando, Florida. Um, So I was really not aware of the treatment that black farmers had received and had been going through for decades, you know, in other parts of the country that are more rural and and where, um, in fact, um, you know, uh, they they farm. So uh, as a lawyer, I worked for a firm and we were expanding into Mississippi and I was just fortunate enough to to meet and have a conversation with Mike Espy who was the first Black Secretary of Agriculture. And he told me about an issue that he started when he was the Secretary of Agriculture. If you ask me, um, this is why they indicted him, but because he was trying to change the U.S. uh, Department of Agriculture uh, and address these numerous complaints that he had saw, that he had seen his dad document while his dad was an extension agent for the Farm Service Bureau. So... 
um, not knowing much about the case, um, to be honest with you, I wasn't wasn't that interested at the time. I was trying to build an, 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 a satellite office for my law firm uh, in Mississippi. But I started hearing these stories from Mississippi, and I had a, a set of brothers who drove all the way from Oklahoma to tell me their story, to complete wow. their case as to um, the discrimination they had experienced and what they continued to experience and the land loss that that these farmers were experiencing. And, and the stories were numerous and they were coming from all over, not just Mississippi. Folks were coming coming to Mississippi to, to have conversations with me. And um, we decided that, you know, we should get involved in, in, in this case. So what were you hearing in some of these stories, what you're allowed to tell us? What were you hearing in some of these stories where there was a commonality of um, injustice? Uh, what I was hearing was just outright denial. And how that denial uh, occurred could have been, you know, a new, you know, numerous different ways. There were instances where folks went in and they uh, sought a loan or a grant that the USDA had been providing to the majority of farmers in that area. And sometimes the agent at the front would throw away the application, never file it. Um, or they would just hold the application. Or they would give the farmer who had, you know, taken a day off from the field to go down there to try to get a, a loan is, is quite an, an endeavor when you're trying to also grow crops. And they would give them the runaround, send them to another farm service office in another county or three counties away. Um, they were sometimes as blatant as to say, look, we're, we're not given any N-words um, loans uh, mm -hmm. or we're out of money. You know, the, the, the excuses were numerous. Um, but one thing that was consistent was that uh, and, and impressed upon me was that this was pervasive across the uh, USDA, that these farmers were um, I, I don't I don't want to say that I, I don't know that I could I could link, you know, an office in Mississippi to an office in Oklahoma to where they colluded. But it had become so much a part of the culture within the USDA that this was just prevalent throughout throughout America from, you know, all the rural states, um, even even going up north. You know, when I was looking looking over this. I, the natural question for me is, uh, for those who don't know, I, I spent my, uh, in undergrad, I did an internship at a uh, agricultural bank. They specifically lend it out to, for agricultural um, means. So whether it be a chicken farm or right. a horse ranch, whatever it was, it had to be agriculturally related. And this was in Orangeburg, South Carolina, this is the year 2006, 2007, roughly. And I was there for three months and I'm working with uh, the loan officers who are delivering the, the, uh, the approved checks uh, to these quote unquote farmers. And I, for, you would think in a place like South Carolina in Orangeburg, right. you would have bumped into at least one black farmer Right. You know, during a 90 day span of an internship, I met zero black farmers. And as I was, as I was looking at uh, your story, 
I was wondering, what do you think was the reason or the, the underlying reason why Black people in America and really all over the world were being denied access uh, for agricultural reasons? Why attack agriculture? Well, it was, it was if, if we go back, uh, you know, in, in, in history uh, and start with the fact that <clears throat> when the slaves were brought from Africa to America, they, um, they didn't have any carry-on luggage. The only carry-on luggage they were allowed to bring was their knowledge of farming. Mm. And then, uh, the, the, you know, through, through the slave industry, America became, you know, just one of the top producers of agriculture, period. There was a period of time where America was the number one producer of cotton in the entire world because it was a certain type of cotton that could be grown in South Carolina. So when you when you take when you take that as kind of a backdrop and then we have ultimately the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment and uh, slaves are now free. And that was really it was it was those were changes in legislation. But there wasn't a change of heart in America. There wasn't a change of heart. The same people who had enslaved them, now they couldn't enslave them, but they they certainly did not consider um, slaves to be equal to them or a black man or black woman to be to be equal to them. So so that there was there was kind of that class stratification. Um, but in addition to it is there's a huge economic value to owning land, you know. Um, as, as, as my grandparents always taught me, like, look, they're not making any more land, you know, um, land is important. And, and a lot of these black farmers had large tracts of land that they were able to kind of assemble and acquire over time. And what happened, uh, in terms of the discrimination and the lack of funds that were, uh, being afforded to them is they were no longer able to compete. They weren't able to compete with the white farmers or their, their crops were not as bountiful as, as the other farmers. So they were falling further and further behind. And that's kind of the direct impact. The indirect impact of it is the tearing down of the family structure. There is something about working on a farm as a family where everyone has chores or working towards a common goal, um, there, there's a certain level of faith that is required because the seed you plant looks nothing like the crop that you're ultimately going to hopefully harvest. Um, and there are just certain realities about, you know, hard work and living on a farm that, that brings about or encourages cohesiveness of the family unit. Well, once these farmers weren't able to compete, once daddy was coming home saying they denied me or I can't get the loan, um, and, and, and despite that, they would struggle to send their kids to college. But those kids, after graduating from college, didn't want to come back to that. They, didn't, they, they weren't going to run back to a place where they knew their father had been discriminated against and, and it was such a hard life. So the, those, those, those next, that next generation started moving away, staying away, not returning, and then you know, ultimately, the farmer, as time goes on, gets older and can't work the, the land himself. And um, the, the, the kids aren't coming back or the next generation isn't coming back. So ultimately, they lose, you know, they lose the farm. So it was mm-hmm. it was it was very it was very much um, 
or the impact of it goes well beyond just farming, but but kind of the institution of 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 Black America. Because I mean, look, the slaves were the slaves were farmers, uh, so that's kind of in our DNA. That's our background, uh, and 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 for a period of time. After the Emancipation Proclamation, despite the challenges, uh, Black farmers became some of the most successful entrepreneurs by working hard and sticking together and working together. Um, they were able to, to, to acquire large tracts of land. In 1920, there were uh, estimated 926,000 Black farmers in America. By the time I got involved in this, in, in this case, uh, in the late 1990s, uh, early 2000, there was less than 40,000 black farmers. Wow. Uh, and we really don't really have to go back that far either, uh, DJ, to, to see the continued discrimination. In the last administration, um, the, 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 the our, our, our previous, our former president, uh, indicated that he was for the farmers and he would do a lot for the farmers, and he did. He he did give a lot of appropriations to the farmers. But when there was an evaluation done just recently, one tenth of one percent of all the funds distributed or loaned by the USDA went to black farmers. Let me repeat that: one tenth of one percent, not one percent, one tenth wow. of one percent. And that 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 was you know during the during the Trump administration. So it's somewhat galling now for me to have uh, white farmers who are objecting to debt relief that the USDA has proposed for uh, black farmers in the most recent um, stimulus package. So help me understand this. You 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 started working on this case the late nineties, early two thousands. How long did it take? I know you ended up working with over 33,000 Black farmers on this case. How long did that take and how much time and energy did you put into making sure that you could uh, formulate the, the best argument towards what you're looking to accomplish? Right. Uh, I, I will tell you that the, the initial case that was brought, and by the way, let me, let me back up, give us some framework. Sure. The, the discrimination that we were able to uh, sue for and ultimately were compensated for uh, occurred between 1981 and 1996. So we're okay. not even talking about all the things that happened in the 60s and the 50s, 40s. Wow. This was, this was a very limited period of time. Uh, initially, suit was filed in 1996, and there was, um, after the USDA started, um, evaluating the claims and looking into it and, and really checking the numbers. The numbers just didn't match. It didn't bear out. Um, there was a settlement or agreement to settle the case. But they believed that there were only, you know, uh, 5,000 farmers, Black farmers who had been agreed at the time. There was a settlement. There was a time frame put on the settlement, as, as there are in every case. And um, the reality is that the majority of those who had been aggrieved never filed a claim during the claims period because they had been discriminated against for so long by the USDA. They just didn't believe that they were now going to compensate them. There was a real lack of trust 
with the USDA and whether they would do the right thing uh, or not. So they did not file. So I was really involved in, in more of the second part of the case, which was uh, an attempt, uh, A, to, first of all, to uh, lobby and influence and, and ask for um, a, a, a second bite at the apple um, and for Congress to appropriate funds for all these farmers who, in fact, had been agreed, but their claim form was late for whatever reason. Um, after we got in 2008, getting the farm bill passed, uh, there was some funds set aside. It was, it was not nearly enough, but it was at least gave us the impetus to move forward with the case, knowing that, you know, God's willing, if we were able to resolve the case, that, that we could get more of an appropriation. So really, you know, from probably 2007 until 2012, I believe, uh, it was just do doing that between lobbying, you know, Congress, in addition to litigating with the USDA uh, and ultimately reaching a settlement agreement for, uh, for 60,000 uh, farmers who uh, at least attempted to file a claim in the first case and, and were late. Um, you know, and it was a long, arduous process even after the settlement uh, in, in 2012 um, there was another period of the, the claims forms being done and being filled out appropriately. And one of the big problems in the initial case was the lack of, of access to attorneys to assist um, the farmers in preparing and, and making the claim. So I took it upon myself when I got involved in the case. The judge was concerned about whether we were going to be able to reach the farmers or not. You know, one, one quick kind of um, side story here is I remember going to the first claims or the first meeting where we were signing up clients uh, and I arrived with Mike Espy. They, they, it was a, a, the crowd was around the corner. I mean, around the corner at a convention center. And uh, we brought some claims forms or we bought some forms uh, for us, for the clients to fill out, for them to sign up with us. And we ran out of forms. And I said to um, one, a farmer, um, we're out of forms, but if you give me your email address, I'll be sure to email you. And this, this, this farmer, who happened to be a female, said, baby, we don't even have cable. We don't have any internet there. And that, so the lack of, it, it impressed upon me, the lack of connectivity that some of the rural that some of rural America has the lack of broadband access to simply get on the internet to communicate to to be able to you know share their life stories um, impressed upon me that it was not going to be enough to um, simply send out postcards to those folks who we thought may be eligible that in fact there needed to be conversations with these uh, farmers in person and they needed to see someone for real. So I got a list of, of, of where a bunch of the farmers were, uh, where we were gonna have claims meetings. And I hired a media consultant that assisted me in doing press conferences uh, in small towns, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you know, Florida, South Carolina, just all over. And I jumped in my car and I would go from city to city holding press conferences um, in the hopes that it would be shown on, on the evening news, and it usually was, 
but which would be kind of really an announcement to the farmers that, okay, help is available and here's where it is and here's who you contact. Um, so, you know, I, I probably drove, you know, 15,000 miles in the, in the course of probably, you know, uh, five or six months, just going from place to place. You know, you mentioned media and, you know, uh, showing up on the evening news in the local areas. I think the question that many people are going to have, and I'm sure you probably hear this a lot, if this is the largest civil rights settlement in U.S. history, how come most of us have never heard about it? Well, it's, it's really the reason that I have written the book, uh, DJ, is because um, this is part of our history that America is so ashamed of the treatment that they gave to these black farmers um, that it's never been, never been documented, never really been talked about, not even by the other lawyers who, you know, worked, worked in the case with me. Black farmers are some of the most humble but resilient people. Um, so they did not, you know, as a group, collectively, they do not just sit around and complain. It's work to do. There's work to be done. And uh, they get back out in the farm and they do the best they can with very limited resources. You know, as, as one farmer told me, you know, I've done so much with so little, I can almost do anything with nothing. Mm. Um, uh so they they just they just made it happen, but they were not a group of folks who wanted to continue to complain. Ultimately, there are farmers and farm uh, advocacy groups that lobbied on behalf of black farmers. But the lack of again, I go back to the lack of connectivity. If you're in, you know, um, the the delta of Mississippi, you don't have any connectivity with a black farmer necessarily in you know Tulsa, Oklahoma, or just outside of Tulsa. So it was almost individualized in terms of the, the lack of access to the loans. It was, only, it was happening to each farmer individually, and they didn't realize that collectively this was going on uh, everywhere. So that's why I think it took a long time for the case to, to kind of come to fruition. But I think that, you know, it is, it is one of those uh, issues and part of the history, some, somewhat like the Tulsa massacre here in, in Orlando. We had, we had a, a massacre in a place called Okoy. Um, these things are really swept under the rug. So, you know, when I hear the, all these bans on critical race theory, I think to myself, that's been happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's been happening, you know, where, where our history has been, has been left out, has been denied, and has not been recorded. So I wanted to have a place where Uh, as I do in my book, I go all the way back to uh, slavery and kind of come forward with the development of the Black farmers and and how they progressed, the challenges they faced, um, because it's important. So this is a very important story that needs to be out there and needs to be heard by um, all Americans. I want to ask you one more question uh, about the book, actually, maybe a couple more. And I also want to learn a little bit more about uh, your, your foundation as well, how it all ties together. Um, what is the name of the book? Where can people uh, purchase the book and read more about this story? Sure. The name of the book is Just Harvest, uh, and it's available at Target, um, on uh, Amazon, 
uh, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, all of the major uh, outlets, uh, it's available there. And your purpose for this book is to get the message out of the entire process that you went through uh, for this monumental case, or is, it, is that correct? No, absolutely. The, okay. the purpose of the book is also to not only not only to get out the kind of the process, but to just to get out the story of yeah. what happened to uh, black farmers and how really a whole segment of the American population was wiped out or were forced to go and do something else because of just systemic discrimination. You know, that what the USDA did is not dissimilar from what happens with other systems that we have here in America. And I think this case highlights the fact that we need to evaluate those systems and see what the impact of those systems are and, and whether they are discriminatory by design. And even if they're not, and then once we see if they're not discriminatory by design, or if they are, um, then I think the next step is to, well, let's examine the people who are implementing the programs that, that are implementing the systems, because I think that's the only way we're going to truly get justice here in America is by evaluating those symptoms uh, or those systems and making a determination as to whether by design they're discriminatory or whether, in fact, um, the people who are implementing the systems are discriminatory. I tell people all the time, we don't need a whole bunch of new laws. We need to enforce the ones we have. <laughs> That's true. We need when to enforce you, yeah. When you were looking through the paperwork through the, the USDA, how blatant was the discrimination? Could you see it right there on paper, or did you have to go really dig and did it? Were they trying to hide it? Uh, ultimately, um, and 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 Mike Espy somewhat speaks to this in the foreword for the book. Uh, his father was a farm service extension agent, and his first day as the secretary of agriculture, he had someone go down and get um, the notes that his father had sent in to the USDA, documenting numerous instances of discrimination. And what, what ultimately was found when there was a, a little deeper uh, look is that there were boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of documents discri uh, uh, alleging discrimination that were never even addressed. They weren't even considered. Mm. Uh, the, the, the black farmers who are Americans, where, I mean, th these, are, these are Americans. And these are American tax dollars that are being loaned out or given out. And, and these Americans were being denied systemically and they were complaining about it and raising their hand and no one was doing anything. Mm, mm, mm. You know, uh, uh, last year we had an episode uh, about private foundations and why more entrepreneurs, especially black entrepreneurs should be paying attention to them more and the types of uh, opportunities that lie in uh, having a foundation and working towards a cause. Uh, if you could, how does your foundation play a role in everything that we've talked about today? Well, the foundation was born out of the, the, the book and the momentum of the book and, and trying to move that momentum into a, a movement, um, a movement of making change. And 
the foundation, uh, what I found that the benefit of a foundation is to kind of fill that gap between, um, you know, public assistance and, um, and, and someone and those who are really in need. Sometimes there's a disconnect there. Um, and sometimes, you know, the government and all the bureaucracy uh, gets too caught up and not able to do uh, certain programs. So I thought it was important for me, um, based upon what I had seen lost by these Black farmers, to focus on three areas with my foundation. One is um, uh, the family. And as I mentioned to you, how the families were broken apart, torn apart, and, and, and we lost a lot of you know, generational wealth by passing the land down um, because they would lose that land. So we, we focus on families. And to that extent, my, my foundation has partnered with a local church here. And, you know, my mother always taught me charity begins at home. So I've begun in my, my local community. Um, but we're partnering with a church here where we have a transitional home. It's a home that's available for families to move into for six months. During that six-month period, they will get uh, financial literacy education on, on loans, on credit, on uh, budgeting, on mortgages. And at the end of those six months, uh, when it is time for them to move out, all the rent that they have paid during those six months, during that period of time, is returned back to the family with the hopes that it will be the impetus for them to become, become owners rather than renters. So that's one, that's one aspect of, of my foundation is, is focusing on families. And, and I'm sure there'll be other areas, but that's the, the one program that we are involved with now. Uh, the next part is education. I, you, you know, it, here in America, uh, and even talking to these farmers, they all understood how important education was. And that's why they worked so hard and would send their kids off to college to, to get an education, to have a potential better life. So what I have done uh, personally and my foundation will continue to support is I've endowed a scholarship at my alma mater, the University of Florida Law School, which is now a top 10 public law school uh, in America for graduates of HBCUs. Nice. Want to bring in the best and the brightest to add to the discussion that goes on and the molding of lawyers in law school, but also to build a, a, a workforce or build, you know, uh, uh, replacements um, uh, or those that will work with us in these areas of civil rights and ensuring that, you know, complete justice is, is occurring. Uh, and then lastly, um, uh, I, I believe in entrepreneurship. Um, one of the things that, that, that I think is just critical, and it, I, again, what I was impressed upon or was impressed upon me by the farmers was their, their grittiness and their willingness to go out there and to make it happen, to make it happen. And um, those, those who, who are able to do that, I think, can be transformational, not only for their family, but for families as a whole. So... We, I have, again, the, the Just Harvest Foundation has partnered with another local charity uh, or another local foundation here called Four Roots, who's building a 40-acre farm here in Orlando, basically in the hood. 
Um, and uh, it's going to be a campus that is going to be, uh, it's going to have classrooms and, and actually a farm and a hydroponic farm. Um, but the hope and the goal is that through the Just Harvest Foundation that we can recruit and financially support young African-Americans who want to go into the field of agriculture, not just farming. Um, it's not just about planting seeds and, and harvesting a crop, but there's a botany, there's botany that goes along with the farm and when you should plant, what about this in the soil, the nutrients, that kind of thing, to, to kind of broaden the scope of what young African-Americans would potentially think of uh, when they think of farming. Again, in the hopes that we can rebuild, we won't get back to a million black farmers like we had in 1920. It's a different world. And it is. And there, there's been, you know, the Industrial Revolution. So that has some impact on it. But it's important to educate them, at least give them the opportunity to learn about farming. We, we will have extension programs at, at various high schools where they grow the produce so they understand the growth of it and actually consume it in, in the cafeteria. So it is it is it is not only helpful to uh the, the young folks who are learning about farming uh, as an educational uh, aspect, they also understand the business of it, and they are actually, you know, reaping the benefits of it when they consume it in, in the cafeteria. I want to thank you for writing the book and putting together the foundation and putting your blood, sweat, and tears uh, into uh, this cause. It, it leaves me wondering in 2021, are Black farmers still in jeopardy of being discriminated against? And if so, what can they do uh, to avoid that? They're absolutely still in jeopardy. Um, yeah. uh, look, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, in the most recent um, stimulus package, there was $4 billion set aside for uh, black and brown farmers, uh, minority farmers, for debt relief, for debt that the farmers had acquired over years, the USDA was going to wipe it out, take care of it. That effort has now been stalled by a group of white farmers who are now claiming reverse discrimination. Why are these black farmers getting this type of, of relief? And, and I told you as a backdrop, during the Trump administration, one-tenth of one percent. I know when we have normal conversation, sometimes somebody will say, look, are you sure? Yeah, I'm 99.9 percent .9 sure, which means you're absolutely sure. Right. That's so so basically we can say we're absolutely sure that when that aid went out during the Trump administration, it was going to a white farmer, not a black farmer. Farmers yeah. are losing, losing their land, uh, losing their farms uh every week here in America. And you know, what I would encourage the farmers to do is to be vocal about it, um, to, to not be shy about the, the lack of assistance that they are receiving. And because if they do, there are, there are lawyers out there like me who will take up that cause and continue that fight. We're going to leave the uh, link to uh, your book, to purchase your book in the show notes. But as entrepreneurs and investors are listening, potentially Black farmers are listening, how can people work with you, potentially with you or your foundation or both, to work towards a more equitable society? 
Sure. I think the best way to contact me is at my law firm, which is uh, the name of it is Osborne and Francis. Um, we are in Orlando and Boca Raton, but handle cases nationwide. So that would be, and, and our, our uh, website is uh, realtoughlawyers.com. Um, so we can be reached on, on that as well. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I look forward to, to working with you, DJ, and, and those who may contact me uh, going forward. It's, it's just so, this is such an important story um, that, that some of the most resilient and just salt of the earth folks had to endure. And I think it's important to get this story out there to ensure that it never happens again. I agree. Before you head out, you said something earlier that I want our international listeners to pick up on. In the same city that there's Disney World and it's fun and it's wonderful, you mentioned that there there is a hood in Orlando, right? And I think I think it's a it's a gem that you dropped that maybe some people might not have picked up because on the map, Orlando, Disney World. It just seems so happy and wonderful. But there are real lives in Orlando who may not have the same luxuries. And I, I think we always have to remember those people, even as we're enjoying our life and, and, and doing these wonderful things with our lives, there's still an underserved community out there that we have to pay attention to. Absolutely, DJ. Look, I grew up <clears throat> in the hood. And, you know, I will tell you, uh, even with with the success I've had, with the access I've had, of course, it's all God's grace. But my very best friend that I grew up with is in prison for life for murder. And so is the guy who grew up next door to me and the guy next door to him. Guy next door to him was killed by the police. And then the girl across the street was all is also uh, in prison for life uh, for murder. So I grew up in, in the midst of uh, of all of these things going on. And those are those are the people that I interacted with every day and dealt with every day. Now, you know, thank God I had strong parents who were very strict on, you know, what I had access to and, and where I could go uh, and that loved me. But it, it really, uh, yeah, yeah, Orlando had, absolutely has, has a hood. It is not all Disney World. I think that's an important uh, gem for people to pick up on. Um, are there any final thoughts, um, especially for up-and-coming attorneys? So, someone may be an up-and-coming attorney, and they may uh, want to uh, dive into the civil uh, civil rights area. Is there any uh, words of wisdom for them before we head out? Yeah, you know, I, I would say connect with who it is that you're representing. Um, it was, it was, it was a help to the farmers for me to come out and meet them in person. But it also helped me to understand my clients and their plight. It's one thing for someone to tell you a story. It's another thing for you to go and look at their farm and their living conditions and that type of thing. And it really changed the way that I practice law. I, I, I was a shareholder and the first Black attorney at a very large uh, firm before I opened my firm two years ago. Uh, and it became too commercialized for me. I wanted to be able to go out and actually meet my clients. And I, I would encourage any young lawyers who are 
thinking about uh, or interested in civil rights or, or any type of personal injury law like I do as well, to go out and actually meet your clients on their, uh, in their area, in their terms, in, in, in their homes, in their businesses, so you get a full understanding of who it is that you're representing. Because, you know, one of the knocks that, that I had heard about uh, Black lawyers uh, when I was in law school is you get too passionate about it. You get, you get too involved with it. It's, it's just the law. It's, there'll be another case. Um, and I disagree with that 100% because I, think, uh, I don't think that's a shortcoming. I think that's, a, that's one of our strengths as Black lawyers is to uh, put the passion into it. And the only way you can truly put the passion into a case is to truly understand who your client is and what they're going through. Attorney Greg Francis, thank you so much for coming on Black Equity Podcast. He is the attorney for the largest civil rights settlement in U.S. history. Over $1.2 billion uh, was the final settlement. And I look forward to reading this book, uh, Just Harvest, and also working with your foundation, Just Harvest as well, and uh, really being a part of this. To me, uh, agriculture, farming is going to be a huge part of intergenerational wealth. And um, I want to make sure we're on the right side of history. So thank you so much for exposing us to this information. And I look forward to uh, jumping into this book and and reading about uh, all the different things that you had to go through uh, through this entire process. Right. Well, DJ, thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing this story with others. And I look forward to talking to you and working with you again in the future. The doors are always open. You can always come back and continue the conversation. I look forward to it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So you heard today's conversation. So here's my question to you. As an entrepreneur, as an investor, what do you do to solve what we just uncovered? What are you going to do to solve what we just brought to you? If you'd like to connect to talk about how we can solve what we just witnessed, send us an email over at blackequitynetwork at gmail.com. I think it's time for us to truly connect on these topics and figure out how working together through collaboration, okay, we might be able to figure out some of the things that we're finding. How do we collaborate to make sure that the problems we're finding have solutions. I want to thank you for joining us today on Black Equity Podcast. Make sure you subscribe on whatever platform that you use to listen. I want to uh, encourage you to follow us on Instagram at Black Equity Network. And also you can follow me uh, on uh, Twitter at DJM Connects. I'm really enjoying how things are transitioning, how things are moving out here. I was I was saying the other day that uh, the universe is playing musical chairs, and I love it. Everybody that you thought was sitting in front of you and was on your side, they've now moved over here, and the people that you weren't sure, now they're in front of you, and the people over here moving over there. The game of universal musical chairs... Right. So be aware, be alert, and 
stay equitable, my friends. Stay equitable.